So now we're in Rochdale. Are you playing any music? That was a that was a really sort of a downtime because really it was um, it was a challenge just to survive, <laughs> play music, and the band was scattered, and there was a little bit of drug use involved as well. For me, it w that wasn't the most important thing, but it was that was sort of getting in the way, um, and. We were living in. Sorry, do you mean that you were getting into drugs and it was getting in the way, or that other people were taking? Other people were, were taking it more seriously than me, but I was doing it too. And but it was survival was becoming a challenge. Eating. Mm -hmm. I was living in a. It was a one bedroom apartment that this benevolent friend, who's still a friend of mine today, uh, Dan Keaton. Um, Dan had a job, and he was a kind-hearted guy. And at one point, there was I think. 11 or 12 people staying in this one bedroom apartment. He's very kind. And a rabbit and a Samoyed Husky dog. And Dan couldn't throw us all out. Dan couldn't, so Dan ended up just moving. So eventually that apartment was going to be gone, and by that time, I found a job. And I started my relationship with Shirley. We knew that we'd fallen in love. So Dan got me a job at Dominion Glass Plastics Division where he worked. You know, working shift work, driving a forklift truck. And you have, you're not giving up music. No, but it was a, it, music was on hold. Once I got out of Rochdale and got my gear back because my, my gear was stored at another guy's house, like a friend of Dan's parents' house. You know, we needed somewhere to put these musical instruments. My bass amp and my bass and everything, I didn't even have it. It was stored away at somebody's place because I was, you know, I didn't know where I was going to be. There was no way to keep it in that apartment. Right. So got my own place, got my gear back. You know, I'm, I'm living with a fantastic woman and I'm thinking like, wow, you know, I got a job. I don't mind it. It's better to have money than to not. Now I can start focusing on getting music happening again so I was the one who rounded up the other guys and made the proposal to Paul Schaefer like let's get a band together he's going to university <clears throat> you know he didn't you know he didn't have anything you know he hadn't been discovered yet it was, that was coming soon but mm -hmm. he he needed somewhere to play as well so we put this band together myself and Dave Smythe and Jim Rag and Paul and uh I moved into one place, and then Shirley and I had moved into a smaller place to get rid of the people that were trying to come and sleep on our floors, you know, because there were so many people that we knew that had nowhere to go right. in those days. So we wanted to get away from all of that. We were, she was working, I was working. We just didn't want to have any part of, you know, having the people sleeping on our floors that were homeless. So we got another place. We figured our way around that. We'll get a small place. We'll get a room in a kitchen so we can say to people, we don't have enough room to put you up. Right? So we moved into this other place, but I found out there was a room right underneath us that was vacant and really cheap. It had no facilities. I could, we could rent it. The band could rent it by the month, and that would be our rehearsal room. And I lived right above it, so what didn't matter about noise or anything. So that's what we did. We moved our, our gear in and we started a, a band uh, and we called ourselves uh, Mockingbird and we started rehearsing and we rehearsed more 
than we played. But we did do a few gigs. Um, and that went on for a while until some, our drummer, um, he, he was the one who drugs kind of overtook him. It was sad because he, he was young. He was mm -hmm. younger than the rest of us, right? By this time, he would have been maybe 18 or 19. Um, and we were all now in our early 20s. And Dave and I were in relationships. And Paul was a serious musician student. And he, Paul was getting discovered by different real musicians in Toronto and theater people and all of that. And so that band kind of disintegrated. And uh, But Dave and I still had a connection we wanted to play music and I couldn't at that point I couldn't I couldn't think about playing music with other people other than my guys that I came to Toronto with I didn't have any other connections mm -hmm. you know some of the other friends I had like my friend Dan Keaton was a song the guy who put us up in the apartment in Rochdale he was a songwriter an acoustic sort of a folky kind of guy and he knew some other guys that played bluegrass and country music and I'd sit in with them, and when they would get together for what they referred to as picking sessions, I'd play with them just to play. And I learned a lot doing that, you know, about that style of music and, right. and was keeping my chops together. But I was getting more into blues at the time. I was buying blues records and, and really, you know, going to see people like Muddy Waters and Holland Wolf and John Lee Hooker, seeing them live, Bobby Bland, um, You'd go to rock shows then, and John Lee Hooker would be opening for The Who, you know, and Muddy would be headlining at the Rock Pile, or Paul Butterfield. We were huge fans of Paul Butterfield. And we still wanted, you know, I still wanted to get music happening, and uh, the band that we had disintegrated. You know, Paul went on to bigger and better things, and Dave and I ended up in a band uh, that was a, sort of a cover band. We had two singers, me and him and a drummer. And we were thinking of the Toronto nightclub scene at the time, mm -hmm. you know, where you did the hits of the day and you worked six nights a week. And we were putting a band together and that was our goal. And while we were doing that, we were discovered by, um, I don't know whether we answered an ad or whether they found us, but uh, there was this... Uh, singer, uh, rockabilly, a guy named Matt Lucas, who had had a rockabilly hit with a song called Moving On. Mm -hmm. He'd covered, he was from Memphis, uh, and he was living in Canada. And he'd had a hit with Moving On, a rockabilly version of I'm Moving On, the Hank Snow tune. And he'd hooked up with this guy, Heavy Andrews, who was a, a thug, but he'd been Ronnie Hawkins's bodyguard, apparently. Okay. And he was the manager of Matt Lucas. Heavy Andrews, perfect name for this guy. So somehow they found us, and they came to listen to this band that we had, two singers, a guy and a man and a woman, and in the rhythm section. And they said, yeah, yeah, we want to hire you guys, be part of Matt, the Matt Lucas show. Are you into that? You know, we'll pay you $150 a week to be in this band. And I'm thinking, yeah, there goes the day job, mm -hmm. because just... A little bit prior to that, I was whining one night to Shirley, saying, by this time I was a father. I was a parent. My daughter was a year old, you know, because I'd gone the other route. There was music and there was family. Only two things ever in my life. And I'd started a family. I really wanted a family. I really wanted to be with her, and we had a child, and, you know, 
The other thing was music, and I thought I could do both. And I was whining one day about I came to Toronto, you know, and to be a musician, and I'm doing nothing. Right. You know, my career is going nowhere. And she said, I said, I'm working this job, and, you know, they like me there, and they keep promoting me into better positions and that, but I, I hate it. And she said, well, why don't you just quit? Just be a musician then. Oh, <laughs> you know, okay. That sounds like support to me. <laughs> so when we got this offer from Matt Lucas and was going to pay 150 a week, yeah, sign us up. We're in. We'll be your band. Well, first thing they did after we signed up was say, those two singers you got, get rid of them. We don't need them. We got Matt. Mm-hmm. So we had to fire these two singers. Well, the guy had just got out of jail. He which, was an ex-con. So which guy? The singer, singer in our oh. band that we had. Frank Paddle, I think, was his name. He knew another buddy of mine who had done some time as well. And so these were guys you don't want to mess with. <laughs> and so we had to fire them. And it was like, you know, we were kind of afraid that, you know, we were, there was going to be some serious repercussions that, you know, he was a tough guy. We thought, you know... But we did, you know, we unloaded them. And now it's like, um, I can't remember the drummer's name. Uh, so there's the three of us, and we're going to be Matt Lucas's band. So we go to rehearsal, and there's this other guy there, this tall guy dressed in black, black shades. He's a harmonica player. Turns out to be Fraser Finlayson, <laughs> who's, you know, became a lifelong friend of mine until he passed away a few years back, right? Fraser's the harmonica player in the band, and they're doing blues, and they're doing rockabilly, but they're also doing all of this smaltzy stuff like tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree and right. knock three times and all of these weird tunes. But that was the in for getting into that nightclub's bar band circuit, and Heavy was the manager. And Heavy would say things to us, you know, like, son, if I tell you a jackrabbit could pull a boxcar saddle that motherfucker up you know like he had all these great sayings like that (laughs) so we sign up to be in matt lucas's band and we start rehearsing and we're and the drummer can't play shuffles and the rockabilly stuff right and matt's a drummer as well like when he cut i'm moving on he he was a singing drummer so matt says to him i think the guy's name was charlie charlie let me show you how to play this stuff and he gets down behind the drum kit and he starts playing this pretty good shuffle. But it, while he's doing that, he puts a ding in Charlie's skin of his snare. He didn't break the snare, but he put a, a, a little right. divot in it, right? So the drummer gets mad and quits. It's like, Jesus, we don't have a drummer. So Matt says, don't worry about it. I'll find us a drummer. Okay. And now I'm starting to get to know Fraser Finlayson better, and I'm realizing that we got a lot in common. He's really into the blues and he's a great harmonica player. And, you know, he, he, he looks a little, you know, I didn't know anything about Fraser at the time. I didn't know his background. He came from a very wealthy family, but he looked like street guy, you know, like black leather vest, black clothing, dark glasses in the daytime. Am I mistaken, but is he the one who had the, the briefcase? Is he the one who brought his harmonica in a briefcase and that's, what the Blues Brothers copied, or am I making that up? Fraser used a briefcase, and maybe they did copy that, get that from Fraser, because Fraser yeah. was a friend of, uh, of Ackroyd's. He knew all those guys. Yeah. He used to use a skinny black briefcase just like those guys did. Yeah, that could be I true. had heard something like that at one point. That's, that's probably right. 
And he was one of those kind of, you know, he had the look and he had the he had the, the, the playing ability and singing to back it up. Like he was opening the show for Matt Lucas and he was good. Mm-hmm. So Matt, we, we get together and he says, OK, I, I got a drummer that I'm auditioning, that we're going to audition today. You know, going to try him out, see if he's good for the band. So this guy comes down, he, he's nervous, he's sweating, he's soaked. He gets, you know, and he sits behind the drum kit and Matt says, relax, man, you got the gig. The guy hadn't played a note. He was terrible. He could. He was awful. So the band wasn't very good, right? But anyway, we go off and we start doing gigs, and this is great. Like you know, there's bookings, and you know, one week after in those days we played six nights a week. First gig was in Richmond Hill. We go out to play this place in Richmond Hill, and unbeknownst to us, there's also topless dancers are part of the show. So while the band's playing. On either side of the stage, there's these round tables. We start playing the first song. These two women came out, off go the tops. They get up on top of the tables and they're dancing while we're playing. All right. <laughs> you know, it's a gig. <laughs> you know, so we're up in Richmond Hill and Fraser and Matt are staying in Richmond Hill. But Dave and I and the drummer uh, are commuting. So one day we go up, I guess we had to go up early for a rehearsal or something. And Matt had done an interview with a local paper and he's, uh, the day before, and the paper had come out. So he sent me and Fraser down to the local newspaper office to get 20 copies or something like that because he, he, he was really good at getting press. That's where I started learning about promotion and all of that from him, right. Right, how you could do it yourself, you know, how you could get, how you had to do it, right. publicity. So... We go down and we get these papers and we, we walk home with the papers. And on the way, we stopped off at a little park, probably to smoke a joint or something like that. I don't remember. And Fraser says to me, uh, I just want to tell you, he said, you know, you and I are getting to know each other and I like you. And uh, I just got to fill you in on something. Um, nobody can quit this band until it's the right time to quit this band. I said, what, what do you mean? He said, well... Let me put it to you this way. If anybody quits this band before it's the right time, good chance you'll end up in a wheelchair. He says, uh, that's, that, 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 that comes down from heavy. Right. Heavy Andrew's the manager. I go, well, all right. I'm not really afraid of heavy Andrew's. You know, I know some tough guys too, but uh, thanks for the tip off. And from that point on, Fraser and I were very solid. Like, it was very clear to us that we would stay in that band until we were fired. We couldn't quit. And about three weeks later, sure enough, we got fired. You know, were you getting paid 150 a week? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. So that was pretty good money back then. It was great money. And I'd been working a day job for a couple of years prior to that, so I was eligible for unemployment insurance, which I'd filed for for backup in case you know the band thing didn't work. And just about the time we got fired from uh, Matt Lucas's band, that kicked in. So. You know, I had, a, I had a cushion there so I could continue. And uh, so we got fired from Matt's band, and that was kind of hilarious. We were, we were playing at this club, and Matt sat us all down. And the very last night that we were playing, like, the drummer was just horrible, so the band wasn't any good. And on the very last night of that particular gig, uh, the drummer, halfway through the night, his foot pedal broke, so he just picked it up and threw it over the front of the kick drum onto the stage. 
And unbeknownst, and he seemed really weird. Well, we found out later that he was high on mescaline, and uh, he was worse than he really, you know, he was even worse than what he had been up until that point. So it was just terrible. Right. And uh, we got fired at the end of the night because Matt had already made plans for another band that he was going to hire with that Fraser had sort of influenced to him on hiring some guys from the States. And, uh, you know, they wanted us out. So at the end of the night, Matt sits us all down at a table and he's hemming and hawing about how to try to fire us. And he can't really come up with the words. Heavy Andrews walks over to the table and he says, give it to him straight. You're no fucking good. You're all fired. (laughs) (laughs) That was that. But luckily... How did you feel? um, Dave was really mad. He stormed out of the place. Um... I don't know. I I guess at the time I I knew that we weren't very good. Um, I had already experienced a bit of rejection in the music business. I don't remember being crushed by it. And um, you know, around that same time, it was either right be it was right after we had were fired. Fraser was doing a gig at a place called Forbes Tavern with the new guys from the band, but the bass player hadn't made it into Canada yet. He was from Detroit. So they called me up to come and play. Because I think as soon as everybody else left, you know, Matt said to me, you know, I really like you, you know. Uh, you play okay and you're a nice guy, but I want to, I got to have this whole new band. Right. You know, so sorry, but you got to go too. So I'm doing this gig with... Uh, Fraser and these guys that are going to be Matt Lucas's new band. And uh, it was taking over for Downchild on one of their uh, nights off. They had a house gig at this place called Forbes. And I was already familiar with Downchild. They were my favorite band in Toronto at the time. I would go and see them live. I discovered them in 1970. And I'd go to their gigs and I really liked them. And I hadn't met any of them yet, but you know, I just thought they were a great band. Hawk singing and you know, David Woodward on the sax, Donnie and Jim Milne on bass, Cash Wall on drums. Like, they were just the best. So we're done playing in Forbes, filling in for Downchild. And I had a Downchild gig. I had seen this guy, James Hartley, sit in with them. And I, I was used to like, you know, that was amazing because I go to Downchild shows and then these other musicians would sit in with them. And I thought, that's great. Like, they bring up these other guys to play with them that, you know, other blues musicians. So this guy, James Hartley, comes into the bar, who I'd seen sitting with Downchild, and he comes up to me and he said, um, I'm starting a band, a blues band, and uh, would you like to be the bass player? Yeah, sure. And he has, this is just based on that one night, or is he, has he seen you many times? No, he just saw me play that night. Wow. And uh, asked me if I wanted to join his band. And so I, I think at the time he had a drummer and a piano player, all he needed was a bass player. So we started, I started playing with James Hartley, the James Hartley band. And uh, James was befriended by Donnie, and we became the fill-in band. Wherever Downchild couldn't play at Forbes, they, they had left their house gig at, by now they'd left their house gig at Grossman's and moved over to Forbes. I think eventually they went back to Grossman's, but this time they were at Forbes, and they were starting to get other gigs, and they would sub it out to James. And I thought that, you know, uh, that they really liked James and that they were helping him out. In reality, 
they didn't think James was very good, and they figured that if they subbed the gig out to James, there'd be no way he'd be able to steal the gig, right? <laughs> but through that, I started to meet the guys in Downchild. First people I met were the drummer and the bass player, Cash Wall and Jim Milne. Because what they would do would be, they would be playing a one-nighter somewhere that would end before bar hours. They'd all come back to Forbes. It was like their clubhouse. Hmm. So they would come back to Forbes and hang out. So I gradually got to meet them all. And I would go to, then after that, I would go to Downchild gigs. And they'd ask me to sit in with them. So at this point, has Downchilds recorded an album? No. They're not a big deal yet. Well, they were popular. Very popular Toronto band with a great following, but they hadn't recorded yet. That came about a year later when they put out Bootleg. Um, and by that time, I was fully ensconced in the Toronto blues scene of the day and really felt like I'd found my place. Like I would, I'd gotten to know Downchild guys, Whiskey Howell, and when I would see all of those people, they treated me like I was, you know, mm-hmm. one of them, so to speak. Like I felt I'd been accepted. Right. And the James Hartley band was getting better. And it was at that point, there was a drummer that came into that band, a guy named Rick Thwaites, who's gone now. But Rick came into that band, and I was still struggling to try, I thought, to try to be a good bass player and a good musician. I hadn't quite locked in. And Rick would always say to me, you and I have to work together. We have to be a unit. We have to be tight as bass and drums. No other drummer had ever approached me like that. And when it, when it finally connected where I got it, we were playing a gig. I think we were playing at the Brass Rail on Young Street. And he were and I... Were naked women dancing there too? Probably. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. But I don't think... I, don't, I think then they tried bands between the strippers. So the strippers would do their thing. And then the band would come on. They didn't dance while we were playing. Okay. I don't think... Because that, would, that might, could be distracting. I'm playing. I'm playing with the uh, with the James Hartley band with Rick Face on drums. Shirley sitting off to the side of the stage, pregnant. I think. No, no. Oh, and then the baby. We are, she was just there. Our our daughter was a little over a year old, so she's sitting off to one side of the stage. And I'm playing, and all of a sudden, that thing that bass players and drummers have when they click and the groove happens started and it was like this is what he means and it was this was like a big moment for me where it was like playing any other instrument meant nothing I want to now I really want to be a bass player if this is what this is if this is doing it right this feels so good that this is all I want to do from now on I just want to play bass I, I had the right bass. I'd finally found like a really good bass, which I still have today. My gear was getting better. I'm looking over. I got my wife beside me. I, I come off the bandstand and, and she says to me, you were really good tonight. And, you know, she noticed that something had changed. I'm surprised that, I mean, I don't know because I'm not a musician, but it seems like a long time until you felt that. That mm-hmm. certain locked-in thing with the with yeah, the it was probably about seventeen uh, to five years. Oh, okay, so it's not that long. Five or six years of playing music before I really felt like now I I now I know. But that's like a turning point. Yeah, like now I know what I have to do to be 
a good bass player and I want to be a good bass player. And I was getting compliments. Like the guy who was a bass player in Downchild, Jim Milne, he was, he's one of my, you know, one of my influences really. Even though we're this, I'm probably a year older than him, but around the same age. But we would have these conversations about bass playing. And he was always, you know, we both played Fender basses. We both liked the same blues artists. We'd have great conversations. And he was always very supportive of me. And I'd show up at a Downchild gig and it'd be, you know, come on. You know, had me the bass and he could go chase girls. And, you know, didn't have to worry about me. I was a married guy. So I'd go up and play the bass while he, you know, tried to get lucky for the night and Donnie and Hawk were always really friendly to me and by that point I got to know them too and you know I I was on my way I just felt great you know so going back to being locked in I mean it sounds like I, I understand the concept but it can't be easy to do that I mean not you can't automatically do that with every ba- with every drummer no matter how good you are right you're right there's chemistry of some sort you're right yeah um yeah there but once has, you feel yes. that that's what you probably hope to attain every time you go out yeah and these days i get it with jim casson and uh, mike fitzpatrick tyler burgess is it i mean all those drummers you played with many many years is that part of it or is it just knowing them or is is it something else it's part of it it's not even like with um Sometimes you have to work at it for a while, uh, but with, with uh, let's say, with Jim Casson and Mike Fitzpatrick, those guys, when I played with them the first time, it was there. Hmm. There was no trying. Like, we don't even have conversations, Mike Fitzpatrick and I, about music or about what we, and we do. But I know we're a really good rhythm section. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that Jim Cass and I are a really good rhythm section. Um, you know, it's just, and I would, there's other great drummers that I work with, uh, Tyler Burgess, mm-hmm. um, Tom Bona. I don't play with Tom very often, just at the Maple Blues Band, you know, and that's, so Tom and I don't have, Tom and I, it takes a while, you know, during the rehearsals for the Maple Blues Awards for us to kind of, but is it different because the Maple Blues Band is a huge band? Does that change anything versus a smaller configuration? You know, when you're dealing with yeah. 12 people or whatever on stage versus four people. It does. Does, does your playing change a great deal? Um, a little bit. I think it changes more for the other musicians. They have to leave more space for each other. The right. rhythm section has to keep that solid thing down. But yeah, the more musicians on stage, you have to adjust to that, the way you play. You know, you have to leave some space. You can't yeah. get in other people's way. So yeah, sure, it's different. A trio to a eight pieces, quite a difference. Right. So now you're making friends with Downchild, you're playing with them a lot more than you joined the band. Is that correct? How did that happen? Well, the friendship between Jim Mill and I, Jim Millen and I, prohibited me from ever joining Downchild. As long as he was in that band and it looked like he was never going to leave that band, it was pretty evident to me that I would never be part of Downchild because he was one of my best friends. Right. And, you know, 
I'd run into Donnie Walsh, you know, years later, and, you know, after they'd become a recording act and a touring act and really popular where they were now, they were even bigger than the early days and a killer band too, you know, and Jane Vasey in there playing the piano and wow, you know, there's just something else, you know, some Hawk and then Hawk would be gone and Tony Flame would be there and Flame was my friend as well. They were incredible. And, uh, I'd run into Donnie at booze cans and stuff, you know, and we were both kind of looped. And, you know, he'd allude to the fact that he wanted to make a change and wanted to, me to be his bass player. Whoa, that would freak me out. I'd have to downplay that at all because my friend was the bass player and mm-hmm. there was no way that I could ever... And but uh, if you could join any band, they would be the band. I would, I, you know, I would love to have been. At that time, that would be if I had... A, a dream it would be to play in Downchild, but my friend was a bass player, and that would never happen. But I was on—I was working in the states in 1977. I was down playing a, a residence gig in Virginia Beach, and Jim got his ass fired, you know. And uh, they fired him, and they hired—I wasn't around, so they hired a guy named Michael Bowser, and he didn't last long. And then they hired. Oh, I don't know, a few others. So finally, there'd been, after Jim, there'd probably been two or three bass players. So now it was like, well, the opportunity <laughs> ever comes up. He's not in the band anymore. And I was going through some tough times. Um, I'd been in Morgan Davis's band, uh, Morgan Davis and the Catfish. And that had come to an end. And I was at a real low point in my career, I I just had it, and you know I I spent a year playing in like uh, show bands, like a tribute to Elvis and the, and Cox Wiggins and more of the best of the platters, just to make money, you know, playing music that I was totally uninspiring. Even though it was Elvis. Well, I like that. You know what, the Elvis impersonator, uh, I like that for about a, for a couple of weeks. You know, playing all yeah. Elvis tunes. And then that got tired. That got old real quick. So did it... You're still making money as a musician, but now it's a different thing. You're playing show tunes or you're doing... Yeah, it's not what I wanted to do. You know, I'd had a bit of a taste of playing in the Strictly Blues bands with right. James Hartley. And then and now I, you know... And then I started my own band, a band called Dollars, which I had for like a year or so, playing like blues and swing and R&B. I'd been in control, you know picking the music that I played and then it was that all fizzled and I spent a year playing like a tribute to Elvis you know and then I hooked up with uh, um, I did a short stint playing blues with a singer named Bob Robinson down at uh, Ontario Place and that was pretty good and I met a guitar player there named Gene Evans and we started a disco funk band which wasn't really my thing but Seemed like another way out. At that time, making money playing blues, I just couldn't find a way. And then Gene and I went on the road with the Platters. Uh, Gene eventually left, but I stayed with the Platters for about a year. And when I was, the Platters thing was coming to an end, I got the call again from Gene Evans saying, I got the Ontario Police gig starting in May. I want to put a band together and play sort of funky jazz kind of stuff and, and R&B. Do you want to be in it? Sign me up. So I got out of the, that whole show band groove and went and spent like four months 
playing a house gig at Ontario place with Gene Evans, playing some pretty good music. It was more leaning towards jazz and funk than, right. and there was some blues. Uh, and that's when I got the call f- from Morgan Davis, who I'd known for years, and to join his band. And I played with him for a while. And then when that fizzled, after about six or seven months, I was really down. I, I was dejected and disillusioned. And I made this promise to myself that I wasn't going to join another band unless I had a record deal. I'd had it. So I, you know, was driving cab. And I'd figured out a way how to make money driving cab. And I became, I, I became a cab driver. Like I got behind the wheel of the cab and I went, I've made no money doing it the first few little while I was out. And I decided that the only way I'm going to make money is this if I become a cab driver. And use that frame of mind, like a real downtown street hustling, downtown Toronto cabbie. Right. Knife stuck in the door, tire iron under the seat in case you have any problems, the whole bit. And I was doing that, and I stopped in at the Isabella Hotel. I'd been doing that for about four or five months. I hadn't even touched my bass in that period of time. I wasn't, my instrument it went under the bed, and I wasn't doing anything in music. And I was just consumed with making money driving cab because you had to do it mm-hmm. six, seven days a week, right? And I, one night I stopped by, by the Isabella Hotel and I went in, you know, take a break. And uh, I, maybe I dropped a fare off there and decided to go and have a quick beer and then get back into the cab, you know. And I go in and I run into Tony Rondelon, who was a sax player in Downchild at the time. And Tony says, what are you doing? And I said, well, tonight I'm driving cab. He said, go talk to Donnie. He said, uh, we're getting ready to make a change in the bass player and we're going in to record a record. You got to call him like right away. So I did. Next day, phoned Donnie up and said, I hear you're looking for a bass player and I'm definitely interested. Come on over. So I go over to his place on Crawford and Donnie had just, the Blues Brothers had happened for him by then, right? And so Donnie had had, already had a pretty good downchild career. By that point, he probably had three or four records out. Right. Been touring the country back and forth, back and forth. And they would have had a hit by then? Flip Flop and Fly, right. that, that had been and gone, but they were really a solid happening band. But they hadn't really had anything going on. And all of a sudden, the Blues Brothers hit. And there was this article in one of the Toronto papers where Donnie had just got his first royalty check for like 50 grand or 60 grand or something like that. And a record deal right. with Attic Records to put out a rec- new record. He hadn't had a record in a few years. And I'm thinking, Downchild's loaded. You know, they're doing a record. This is, how, you know, this is perfect. This is exactly what I wanted. You know, now I can maybe get out of cab driving. So he has me over for the interview to... Uh, join the band and we have this long conversation and at the end of it you know basically I had the gig there was no auditioning if I wanted it I had it but he wanted to talk to me and so okay so can I ask you like what happens in an interview like that because you've obviously played with him a number of times so he knows your playing capabilities so is it really like what is he looking for when he interviews you your attitude your yeah and whether or not I'll uh, can handle the road work and the money. And that was the money was a shocker because I thought he was loaded. Right. And when he told me what he was going to pay me, I was like, really? Okay. Like the money wasn't very good, but it was better than driving cab. So I had to make a quick decision. 
do I take this for this money? Because, you know, I'm going to be in the studio in a few weeks recording a record, you know. I was a little bit shocked, but uh, I, I let it let it slide. And it was a short meeting. And as I was leaving, uh, getting ready to go out the door, he said, okay, this is great. He said, we'll see if you can cut it. And I thought, cut it? I can, you know, I'm better than, than any of these guys that have replaced Jim. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that he didn't mean musically. He meant to see if I could cut it being in Downshout, being on the road all the time, and just what it is to be in Downshout. Right. And at this point, you play with bands, but you really don't know the road life the way Downshout's on the road, right? Uh, I know the road life pretty good because I... Oh, okay, I'd, yeah, uh, you did the... the but not the way Downchild was doing it. I'd always been on the road. From the time I started making money playing music in Toronto, I was a road dog. Mm. I played... Most of my gigs were played on the road. But in those days, it would be you go into a hotel, into a bar for six nights, right? You, you stay in probably upstairs or down the street or somewhere like that. Right. I was used to being away from home. Uh, I wasn't... I hadn't done the one-nighter scene so this was so downtown was already at the one-nighter scene is that yeah it's, well one-nighters and the occasional six-nighter three-nighter two-nighter but you know can, lots of gigs in a row and on the road for long periods of time playing a lot of different places what's a long period of time two and a half months okay uh that was my first you know when i joined the band i you know went in and did uh the record we deliver then we went on a tour to the East Coast for like two or three weeks, came back home, went to the East, did we go to the East Coast that year or the West Coast that year? Anyway, shortly after joining the band, we went to the States for two and a half months. And that was reality. You know, like I'd been away from home for that long time, that length of time once before, but, uh, you know, it was a decision that I had to make. Do I want to be? a real musician or do I want to live in Toronto and you know have to do work that I'm not happy at mm -hmm. uh, you know this isn't the greatest for a guy who's got a family but uh, on the other hand how great is it going to be for me to be home all the time and to be unhappy so I went for you know whatever it takes and uh, you know that part of my downchild life lasted for three and a half years and four records so looking back on it it was tough because because you know, of all the time away from home yeah it was it was tough on and um my lifestyle then wasn't that great either you know i was into stuff that wasn't all that healthy i was drinking too much is that because of the road is that they got nothing to oh do i with was already i was already you know a, a, a guy who drank and did drugs before i did, did join downshow it just, you know, maybe I did more when I was in that band. Right. I don't know, but it was I that they didn't they didn't turn me on to anything like that. I was already there, you know. I was already, you know, a champion at, at the party scene when I joined Downchild. I fit right in, right? Because that's what it was like in that band in those days. Lug out, you know. It was like uh, as my a friend of mine, Teddy White, who, had been, who did a little bit of time in Downchild, he was saying to me late, late recently, he said. Going on the road with that band was dangerous, man. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was, you know. So I what mean, made you leave or what happened? Well, when I left, I stayed until 83, from 79 to 83. And, uh, you know, when I joined that band at that time, 
I thought, I, I can do this forever. Because this was a dream band. Yeah. There's no reason for me to play with anybody else. I can play with Downchild forever. But that all changed. And it started to change around the time that Jane Vasey passed away. Which is understandable. Uh, we didn't, we, the grief that we were suffered by losing her, we didn't know how to, you know, there was no grief counseling. No. You know, you don't do that in those days. And would, it, would you even do it now for a band like Downchild? Forget it. You know, I mean, the, the night that Jane died, we were playing a gig. You know, we didn't take any time off. We just kept going. Right. And uh, looking back on it now, that was, that effect, I mean, it affected Donnie because they were a couple. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it took him a long time to bounce back, but it affected all of us. Because it's family. It, it was, yeah, our sister. Mm-hmm. You know, we loved her. And, uh, and she was just a fantastic person to be around, a musical influence. Like, there was so many things about Jane that was great. Um, and that's when it started, you know, around that time and I was drinking too much and I was trying to quit drinking. So I was being like the grumpy, uh, sober guy and the band was changing. Musicians were leaving and being replaced by guys who weren't really like the guys that had left and flame was gone. And John Whitmer, who was a fabulous singer, was a singer. So we had John there, which was great. But the rest of the band just wasn't that good. And um, Donnie, uh, he made a couple of attempts to hire a replacement for Jane, and then he decided no piano player. So that band without a piano. Right. Musically, it wasn't, wasn't really making it for me. And um, I was trying to uh, kick my bad habits, and that wasn't really working for being in that band at the time. Like, that there would was, be difficult. There was no room for a sober guy. <laughs> In Downchild, in those days. Yeah. Now it doesn't matter, but in those days, it it just, and you know, maybe I wasn't being the right kind of sober guy. Mm-hmm. I know that my attempt at sobriety at that time didn't hold. You know, I ended up eventually starting drinking again, and it took a few more years before I could get that in the right place. But uh, yeah, it, it I wasn't happy being in the band, and I was also starting to come to terms with the damage uh, that my lifestyle had been doing to my home life, mm-hmm. to my family. And, uh, you know, I, I, I really didn't want to lose that. My daughter was becoming a teenager. I didn't want to lose contact with her. And the situation in Downchild was not really right. And I'd, I'd given up on this thing about I can do this forever. Mm-hmm. I started realizing that I couldn't. And that maybe I should get out. But I'd always just quit jobs and things I were doing without any plan. You know, if I was unhappy prior to that doing something, I would just quit. And then, oh, shit, what am I going to do now? I don't have a job. I just So this time I figured, I'm going to plan it. If I'm going to leave Downchild, as much as I don't want to, um, i got to make sure something else is in place before I go. Right. But... That I never that never happened because Donnie fixed that. Um, we were doing a gig in Thorold, Ontario, and up until that point, he always had road managers and stuff, a buffer between him and the band to handle things. Mm-hmm. But things were deteriorating so bad that there was no road manager. So it was back to like Donnie dealing with the band. And at the end of the night in Thorold, 
the next day we were supposed to go and play a early show, like a noon, one o'clock in Ottawa for the Tulip Festival, right. of all things. And our, pace, our pay rate in those days was you got a weekly salary. If we didn't play six nights, you got a half pay week. So this would have, this would have been a half pay week, but now the, the extra gig had been added on to the Sunday. So some of the guys in the band thought that we should be getting extra money for Sunday. And Whitmer and I, who were the veterans of the band at that time, were basically just rolling with it and going like, half pay sucks, but, right. you know. Because in some ways, this is still a pretty good gig, right? Compared yeah. to what other bands have Compared been. to anything else I had right. to, to offer me at the time. So we're in Thorold, end of the night, Donnie's paying everybody, and uh, he's, he's hammered. You know, I mean, he was dealing with the loss of Jane, still mm-hmm. dealing with it. He hadn't got over to it. He was in a, not a very good place at the time. And uh, he tells us that, uh, all right, we still had a road crew in those days. So there was, you know, a road crew with the gear and, and all of us in one van, I think. I don't think we had the two vans for the band anymore. It was one van, all of us in one vehicle. And then another vehicle for the crew. So he says to us, uh, you guys, you're dropping me off in Toronto and you're driving to Ottawa. I'm going to fly there tomorrow. And we're all kind of, me and Whitmer are kind of like, prick. (laughs) You know, but the other guys, they're like, what? You know, and this is outrageous, you know, kind of stuff. We're going, you know, (laughs) get in the van, you know. And then they they go like, uh, and then he says, uh, and for the extra gig in Ottawa, I'm going to top up everybody's pay by 25 bucks. And again, me and Whit, we're looking at each other going, thanks, 25 bucks. The other guys, again, the other guy, the new guys in the band are really insulted now. Extra 25 bucks to go to Ottawa. They don't see it as you're getting half your salary plus a little extra mm-hmm. for a short week. They don't see it that way. So they make a little, they make some kind of a, you know, comments and it's swept under the rug and we get in the van. Whitmer is behind the wheel. I'm riding shotgun, the other guy's in the back. And it was one of those vans with beds and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So Donnie's sleeping back there. And I, Whitmer and I have this little conversation before we pull out of Thorold going like, he's going to pass out. We'll just drive to Ottawa. <laughs> Not going to stop in Toronto. He'll wake up in Ottawa. He won't care. He's there. It's not like he had to go home and go to bed and get up and go to the airport. We've already got him there, right? Mm-hmm. He, he, he won't be mad. Yeah, sounds like a good plan. So we get out on the highway. We're driving along. And all of a sudden, I hear in the back of the van, I hear the trombone player. Ah, uh, Donnie. Ah, uh, Donnie. I don't want to go to Ottawa for $25. And neither does anybody else. And I think, oh, No. Leave him alone. And I hear, ah, Donnie. And he won't stop. All of a sudden, Donnie jumps out of bed. He goes, pull over. We pull over. He says, anybody who doesn't want to go to Ottawa for $25, get out of the van. I look in the rear view mirror. I see the crew pulling in right behind us, right? Nobody moves. We're all sitting there. He goes, on second thought, get out of the van. All you guys. <laughs> so we did. We got out of the van. He got behind the wheel and drove away. And we got into the crew van and drove into downtown St. Catharines. 
And one of the guys had a brother in St. Catharines who came and picked us up and drove us all back to Toronto. So we all went home to Toronto and went to bed. The crew went home, went to bed. Donnie went home and went to bed. And then at noon the next day, the booking agent gets a call from Ottawa. Where's the band? It took Don Child a while to get gigs in Ottawa after that. Wow. And we just blew it off, right? So he'd looked upon it as he'd fired us all. So he had to go and write that wrong, you know, the next day or a couple of days later. So he drove around to everybody's house to rehire the band. Well, Whitmer and I had both, John Whitmer and I had both been talking together that we were going to leave the band. He was going to go in about three weeks. He was going to move back to Vancouver, where he'd been living. And I, you know, I didn't, I hadn't picked a time, but I knew that I was going to be out. But after that incident, I decided that I should be gone. So when he came around to my house, I just said, you know, I was thinking of leaving the band anyway, so... You know, what do you need? Two weeks, three weeks, whatever. So that was that. And he kind of took a break for a while after that. I mean, not long, mm -hmm. a month or two. And then he put a new band together, you know. Um, but that was it. That was that. And, uh, and what's that? And I know how you felt. And it was it seemed like everything pointed to that being the right decision. Did you ever regret that decision? No, uh, not at that. No, never, ever. To this day, I don't regret leaving the band then. I'm glad that I'm back in the band now. So how did that happen? Um, the 25th anniversary, they were doing it at Grossman's for a week, and they were rounding up as many of the ex-band members as they could to be part of it. Okay, so at this point, why are you not playing? What's your relationship with Donnie like? Well, pretty good. Okay. The one thing about Downchild, you know, uh, if you leave that band, as long as you don't do something totally outrageous or really screw Donnie around, you can come back. Yeah. It happened numerous times before me. There were lots of guys who had been in the band more than once. I didn't think about being in the band again, you know, uh, after that time. Um, and then, you know, in the interim, I had, a lot of stuff happened for me in the period where I was out. Right. I had the Kendall Wall Band, uh, the whole thing that I do, all the stuff that I did with that band. I learned how to be a publicist, how to be a promoter, you know. A booking agent. Yeah, all the different other aspects of the music business that I learned. So it was a very good period. When I got back in the band, it was around the 25th anniversary. I went and did the, I was asked to be part of it, which I was thrilled, you know, to be asked. Right. And I went and did my night. Hawk was singing. It was great. Grossman's. And I, I remember leaving that night after it was over, feeling really good and thinking, what if? You know, and I, at that point, I sort of decided that yeah, if I ever had the chance, I'd probably do it. Another year or two went by, maybe about a year. Gary Latimer was the bass player in the band, and Latimer started calling me to sub for him, and nobody had ever subbed out a downchild. You're either in the band or you're out of the right. band. So I found that a little strange, but I went and did a couple of gigs with him, and it was a different band. It was the band that it is now, with Chuck Singh and Fon Farah, Pat Carey, uh, Tyler Burgess was playing drums at the time. Um, and I had known Tyler since he was like 16 years old, so I had history with him as well. So it was, even though I was like not a band member, I went and played with him, and I, what, I realized what I had missed. I missed the Downchild audience. 
right. and the down, you know, the gigs and the audience. The music was all different. It was a good band. But I, what I missed, and I really liked the new stuff that they were doing, that I had to learn to be, with, you know, Latimer's sub. But I really, the thing that struck me the most was I missed the crowd. If I miss anything about this band, it's their audience. Right. And they also them. had a bigger audience than most, right? Yeah, and it's a great audience. Mm-hmm. Big or small, the people that come out to see Downchild, they're great. You know, it's just a great crowd, you know. And even, you know, even if they're new to Downchild, they're, it's great it's right. fantastic so you know i'm subbing for latimer i did a couple of gigs and they were going down some of them were going down to florida to do some gigs and use some guys from down there because they couldn't afford to take the whole band and uh, they played a new year's eve gig in toronto and then they headed down to florida this was when donnie used to spend time in florida in the winter mm-hmm. and i got a call while they were in florida from pat carey saying uh Latimer just quit with no notice after New Year's Eve. He moved to Calgary. He didn't even tell us he was going. He said, when we come back, could you sub some more gigs with us until we find a bass player? And I said, sure. And then when they came back on the first gig, and by now I realized that I think I want to do this again, or I'm going to tell Donnie that I'm available if he wants me. So on the first gig, I went to Donnie, and I said, you know, I can do this again. And he looked at me, and he said... Don't you and I have a problem? <laughs> and I said, I said, no, we don't have a problem. He went, okay. <laughs> and that was that. I was back in the band. Because during the period where I had the Kendall Wall Band at the Black Swan, he used to come and be our special guest. He'd come right. and hang out with me. You know, we were still making music together on occasion. I used to book Downchild at the Black Swan. I used to book Downchild at the Silver Dollar. So did he think that the problem was that you th- you had a problem with him? Like he wasn't sure? Yeah, he didn't. He couldn't remember. <laughs> Something went down. You know? <laughs> he, didn't, he doesn't like to talk about the getting out of the van. Right, thing. right. Yeah. That's been an embarrassment to him for years. Right. So he didn't want to, you know, come right out and say, I fired you or you quit or I made you get out of the van. He just said in his way. Don't you and I have a problem? Because we were having a problem with me being sober and him not. Right, right. During that time, we were not connecting. You know, it was difficult. Uh, and he might have met that. And by now, this time, he wanted to come back in the band. I was a sober guy. I wasn't drinking. I hadn't been drinking for a while. It was totally in my past. I was never going to do that again. Uh, I wasn't going to do cocaine anymore. That stuff was all out of my life. I was still smoking pot. Took me a while to get rid of that one, but I was, you know, I was a different guy. I was much healthier, and I liked, I liked the way Downchild was at the time. They weren't playing as much. Like the road work wasn't as, as stressful as mm-hmm. it had been when I was in before. They were still going on the road, but it was being handled differently. I liked the guys in the band. I I knew them all, but I didn't I didn't know them all as I do well as I do now. Right. You know, like now I know all those guys were brothers. But and then I knew Chuck and Pat and Fonf, you know, and I really liked them. Um, knew they were good musicians, and I liked the fact that they all did stuff outside of Downchild. When I was in the band the first time around, that never happened. You're in Downchild, and that's what you did. But when I got in the band that is in now, Chuck had his thing, Pat had his thing, Fomp did his thing. They did things together. 
when I joined Downchild the second time, I had me, Chuck had a house gig where Latimer was a bass player. I got that gig right off the bat. You know, like, it just made a lot of sense. I mean, know? most people in Canada would know Downchild and probably would have seen them. But there are a lot of people who, haven't, who, doesn't, who don't know Downchild. There's something about the band that's, to me, different. Can you explain what that thing is that, you know, when I see Downshot, one, they, you seem to have more of a show than anybody else, and it's all paced out properly, and I presume probably the same or similar every night. Yes. But it is a show that has a beginning, middle, and an end, and yes. there's a certain pacing that happens, yes. which is unlike other blues bands who might call out tunes based on the feel of the night or whatever. Yep. But other than that, what is it about that band that just is different than any well, other? Well, that show aspect <clears throat> is important right. to mention. Donnie learned that right in the early days when Downchild broke up with Flip Flop and Fly. He was playing rooms that rock bands played. And his agents and stuff said to him, you can't just go in there and screw around like you did at Grossman's. you got to have a show. Right. And he knew that. And he put a show together and he's kept that format forever so number one what you just said makes sense I did a gig recently last Saturday with Jack Civiletto uh, Buffalo mm-hmm. musician and Jack has been a Downchild fan for years and what Jack said to me was he said when I found Downchild he said it was great it was so different than American blues bands he said down here blues is sad he said with you guys it's happy mm-hmm. there's some it's almost it's almost like there's some comedy in it as well you know it's fun um and it's like donnie's old motto you know good times guaranteed Mm -hmm. you know we play this music to get up we don't play it to get down right there's a feeling about that band you know and it's entertaining um chuck jackson as the front person for the band it's very important to chuck to entertain to connect with the crowd Mm -hmm. and he does that extremely well you know hawk and tony were good at that as well but they were they weren't as consistent with it as chuck like chuck always entertains whereas hawk and tony it was on their moods mm-hmm. if they're in a good mood they entertained if they're in a bad mood screw you whereas chuck is he's an entertainer as well as a great singer and a very strong singer like his i don't remember i mean there's i guess there's times where chuck's voice isn't quite where he wants it to be, but I don't remember, I don't know any time where Chuck, well, there was one time at a Southside Shuffle where he kind of wrecked his voice over the, you know, mm. doing too much over the weekend where yeah, he wasn't 100%, but his voice is usually all there, and his entertainment part of the show is all always there. It's so great when you're a musician playing behind people like that, because you don't have to worry about anything except playing your part. So moods never affect them? I mean, I've never seen him different on stage. He's, he, 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 no, he never brings whatever bad stuff is going on to his life or his, his health or anything like that to the stage. Right. And I know there's been times where he's, you know, had health problems, things like that. No, he gets up and he does his thing. He's great. Yeah, for sure. All I, those guys are great. You know, yeah. like they, they, None of the guys in Downchild ever give less than 100%. Mm-hmm. It's really fantastic to play with musicians like that. So all, all, after all these years, getting on the stage is still a thrill? 
with them. Oh, yeah, for me it is. Yeah. I, you know, I, I get a thrill from every gig I do almost, you know. Mm -hmm. um, there's some times where you go and play out, outside of Downchild. Like, Downchild's always first class. Mm -hmm. You know, there's never... I mean, there's times where, you know, tonight's show wasn't as good as last night's show, you know. But it's still a very high level. The level is always a certain place, you know. There's sometimes in some of the smaller gigs I do, maybe some of them aren't as, aren't as thrilling, but I always, you know, I'm mm -hmm. always up for it. You know, I've taken a lot of your time. We're going to break this up into two parts. I really want to thank you. I also want to thank you because many, many years ago, in 2001, I think, I decided that I would pursue this crazy idea of documenting the blues, and you were one of the first people I met, and you were the booker for uh, Silver Dollar back then. Yeah. And you instantly said, do you want me to put your name on the media list when I didn't even know I was media? <laughs> uh, you also more than once, many, many times, helped me hook up with um, musicians who I, I hardly knew, that they, they didn't know me, but you allowed me the opportunity to interview them and put in a good word for me when, when you didn't even know who I was. But I really appreciate that because, you know, I've probably done hundreds of interviews since then. And in the very beginning, you know, a lot of them happened because of your help. And I really appreciate all the help you gave me over the years and connecting with all these great musicians. So, Well, you brought a lot to the table. Yeah, back then, no. You well, know. it was the way you presented yourself. No, I appreciate that. I mean, you know, you know there was a certain right amount of trust Right from the get-go. There, there were people that I met. Rico Ferraris is the same thing to me. You know, he came to me with an idea mm -hmm. and was flabbergasted that I went, yeah, okay. <laughs> yes. There's an instant read, right? Yeah. Like, when it, comes to the, when it comes to the blues, I'm always open to what can we do to move this thing along and make things, you know, broaden what we're doing or make it better or add to it. So someone comes to me with a proposal, I'm all ears, and it's, it's that split-second presentation how someone presents themselves. You know, you, I'm, I always make a real quick decision, and then it's sink or swim for you, right? Mm -hmm. Like you had a great idea, and I went, yeah, let's see where this goes. Rico, same thing, right? And in both those cases, it worked. For, for all of us, right? I mean, well, yes. And you're you're talking blues series and and doing this with me today has added a whole other thing to what what there's something that wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. And Rico coming along as being an independent blues promoter, he added something that wasn't there before. You know, recently I met a guy uh, from down in Fort Erie. Well, he lives in Col Port, Port Colborne now. Um, Christopher Darton, mm -hmm. who's, you know, you know Chris, yeah. uh, same thing. Okay. And, and we should mention, Chris did this amazing documentary, which you can see on YouTube, about the Kendall Wall Band. Yeah. That everybody should check out, because it's not only about your band and your history, but it's about the Toronto blues scene at a certain point, which is an, a neat time capsule that he's and he he captured. Was, he was another guy mm -hmm. who came to me and said, I'm doing this, you know, can you... I think originally it was, uh, he came to me and said, I'm doing a documentary on Richard Newell. Mm -hmm. um, you know, do you, can you talk about him? Can I interview you on him? Or do you know people I should be talking to? And I went, yeah, sure. I know lots of people. You should talk to this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. And, you know, that's how my relationship with Chris started. It was just, he came to me and there was a good feeling 
you know, instantly. It wasn't like, uh, got to check this guy out. It was none of that. <laughs> Send me your, let, hook me up to your website or give me your, none of that. It's how someone in the f first meeting really, you know, if, if it feels right. And I was right with Chris because when I was, uh, uh, re you know, rescuing the Kendall Wall recordings and I sent that little media release out to people saying, is there a story here? He got back to me and said, I think there is, yeah. you know, I'd like to document this. And once, and it was originally started out to be documenting me taking these old recordings and making them and, and releasing them. When he got into that, he thought he realized that, Oh, there's a story about this band as well. And he expanded it and he did me a big favor, a huge favor by doing that documentary. Yeah. Because that was a period of my life which was really good that was gone and hadn't been preserved well. And we had a couple of shitty sounding cassettes and people would come up to me all the time and say, oh, you know, I used to have so much fun at your Saturday afternoon matinees. I saw you with this person, with that person. And the people that, you know, were there always said great things about it. My family loved it. I got to meet all of those great blues musicians from across Canada or from the States and got to play with them and, you know, sort of be included in their world. And it was all like this kind of a thing in the past where that documentary saved it all. Mm -hmm. That and the recording, right? So what a gift. For sure. So if you haven't seen it, it's on YouTube. Uh, the Way We Was, I think it's called. The Way We Was, yeah. yeah. On, on, on. The easiest way is you just go to the Kendall Wallband website. And there's a link right there that takes you right to Or you can find it on, on YouTube called The Way We Was. But yeah, and it's, uh, it, the only, uh, it's unfortunate that the financial backing didn't it's a tough one. happen for that. But yeah. yeah, we know how hard that is in that part of the business, yeah. right? Um, I know there was... You know, he needed there needed to be some money raised to make it into a commercial release, and that never happened. But you know, it's out there for people to see, and people come up to me all the time or contact me and tell me how great it is. So I'm happy for Chris that you know his first thing out of the gate mm -hmm. doing a documentary has got such good reviews, and it's something that he can use to further his career, for right? Sure, because he's a talented person. Yeah. But I thank you because I, I really feel like part of my journey and the places and the people I've met um, were made possible by you, and I want to thank you for that. That's nice to hear. So I'm glad. I'm glad and thank you for out. doing this. I really appreciate you spending some time. Way more time than either of us thought, right? <laughs> but it was still great. Thank you so much. Yeah, it'll be an hour. <laughs> Three hours later, I you know I meant to say to you at the time, well, don't let me talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> too late for that. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>